I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. the Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. We have to interrupt our usual schedule that we've planned because there is some breaking news that our producer DJ CJ has just informed us of. CJ, give us the facts. Pizza Express are about to engage in talks with their creditors. Last seen they had debts of 1.6 million per restaurant. That's a lot of dough balls, David. I find myself very, truly upset about this. Do you? I'm really surprised. I'm really surprised. I think it's because people don't go out for meals as much anymore. They just get a Deliveroo. But Pizza Express is on Deliveroo, but then if you're on Deliveroo, why would you get a... Not on mine. Why would you get a Siciliana? I'll tell you why it's very upsetting for me. Growing up in the North London suburbs, I don't know if you knew this about me, Pandora, I, I grew up in the North London suburbs... It's very sort of Angela's Ashes tale. Um, <laughs> the only place that you had for socialising, drinking, I'll be honest, a bit of frottage, was... <laughs> you look disgusting, disgusted and appalled at everything is? I said. It's like dry humping. Are you sure about that? I think it's dry humping. I think it's something else. It's definitely non-penetrative. Anyway... The technique or process of taking a rubbing from an uneven surface to form the basis of a work of art. That's the first meaning. The practice of touching or rubbing against the clothed body of another person in a crowd. Which is exactly what I was doing. Did you do it in a crowd? Under the tables of Pizza Express Under Animal. the tables in a crowd? Yes. <laughs> it was. I had exactly the same. I used to do the same. Pizza Express was where we would meet, but obviously we couldn't afford anything, so... We would... You had to order food. Yeah, get a side Caesar salad. We used to get in a Do- bottle of wine. We'd just share dobles between, yeah. like, six. God, it's where everything happened for me, Pizza Express. Truly, it's yeah, where it's big I... big for millennials. I reached all the bases... <laughs> of pizza. Oh, God, I was going to say a cleverer person would have come up with a good pun there. I had all my great friendships began there. I will be truly sad. Oh, God, it's also really, really happen. good pizza. Yeah, I love pizza. I the one with the delicious. circle cut out, though, is a very light snack. A leggiara. What is it? Is it? A leggy, leggy, leggy. There are presumably only a few that you can order because you're veggie. Uh, yes. I can't. Like I mean, one. I do just like, yeah, I love the cheesy ones. I obviously love a thin base because I'm not a fucking animal. And I have always thought of it as a bit of an institution. So I'm amazed. Anyway. Oh, first I'm, Thomas Cook. I know. It's like BHS and Woolies all over again. <sighs> and CNA. Not a day that goes past me, I don't My mum always told me that stood for coats and hats. <laughs> <laughs> CNA still does very well all over the rest of the world, though. Does it? Don't you know? Booming business. <laughs> Less breaking and much more exciting is I am over the moon that this week I have an actual legitimate reason to talk about Roger Stewart Panda. 
A couple whose dream Las Vegas wedding was almost wrecked when Thomas Cook went bust ended up being serenaded by Sir Rod Stewart, who made a surprise entrance at their ceremony. Caesar's Palace, which is where I think they were going to originally host their wedding, heard about their plight with the Thomas Cook disaster. So they arranged for the couple from Liverpool and 16 of their friends to be flown to Vegas so their big day could go ahead as planned. And Rod Stewart turned up for a surprise set, wisely avoiding numbers like hot legs and do you think I'm sexy? Sir Rod chose to sing, have I told you lately that I love you? I love do you think I'm sexy? Do you think he wisely avoided it because it's not very me too? Uh, that that could be correct, actually. I mean, the whole Rod Stewart back catalogue pre sort hot of legs. 1990. God, I love hot legs. Uh, is not very is not very comfortable <laughs> in a post Me Too world. It's just a bit. It's it's not. It's a bit racy. There's one that's 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 palpably uncomfortable, which is Tonight's the Night. The lyrics of which are just unbearable, even for me as Rod Stewart's greatest fan. You'll be pleased to know. Do You Think I'm Sexy was very much considered on the shortlist of our walk-on, walk-off music for the high-low experience. Sadly, didn't make the cut, but it got very close. Did it not? Dolly mm. is, as will be no surprise, in charge of um, the musical soundtrack for the high-low experience. Otherwise, it would be Baby Shark and Barbie Girl. <laughs> I had to choose four songs, and it took me two hours. because <laughs> you're so thoughtful. Talking Thanks, of... Talking of singing, have you seen the busker who went viral? No. It happened the week before last, I think, but I only saw it a few days ago and retweeted it this weekend and it seems like it's only picking up momentum. The video has had 1.5 million views on Twitter. Um, This guy posted a video and he said, missed my train and nearly got hit by a bus crossing the road to hear this woman. She's called Ruth Brown. She's actually already quite famous, my Googling tells me. She was on Jeremy Vine's show in April. She's been on The Voice. She's got like... 26,000 followers on Twitter at Ruth J Brown but she's also still busking this video was taken the week before last in Brixton we only said goodbye with words I've done a hard time another news story I've been positively spammed with this week is the Jason Donovan coming to the rescue in his pants thing. Yeah, I made a note of that. Um, he looks quite good. Yeah, he's got a delicious little balm in those little tighty whities I do love that he reached solely for a pair. I was trying to think of if there was a fire, what I would reach for. And I, think, I thought the same. I think I would reach for something more substantial. For anyone who's not aware of the story, firefighters were called to Notting Hill to put out a fire and they found the Australian actor and singer Jason Donovan in his underpants uh, tackling the fire all off his own accord with a fire extinguisher. The BBC reported that Donovan, 51, who lives across the road, spotted the fire from his home. Fireman Thomas Wolfe explained, when we arrived, a gentleman was tackling the fire using a fire extinguisher. We took over from him and quickly dealt with the blaze. The London Fire Service quipped, everyone needs good neighbours. I love that quip. Good quip. But whenever I see Blaze now, I do wonder if someone's actually said that. Blaze. Do you think he did actually say, we took over from him and quickly dealt with the Blaze <laughs> as a farmer? Blaze is up there with Brits, isn't it? Of things that people never say, but you see in print every single day. Frock. <laughs> Frock. 
The writer Caroline Criado Perez has been writing about Luz this week, and I have to say I could not agree more. I feel quite passionately about Luz. Last year, after a More Luz campaign, the Old Vic Theatre announced that they would be building More Luz, as the queues for the ladies was always absurd. What they've ended up with, though, through gender-neutral Luz, are 42 Luz, either urinal or sit-down that men can use, and 24 loos that women can use. So basically almost double the loos for men. And to use some of the loos, the women have to walk past the urinals, something both men and women have said they feel quite uncomfortable about. Mm. Caroline's been drawing attention to this, and she said, you know, I think she tweeted, like, didn't really expect my next kind of meta to be about lose but there's a really valuable point here that i think is often missed women spend much more time on the loo than men and she calculated in her book invisible women um that women spend 2.3 times as long as men on the loo yeah and this is because of a number of factors women on their period needing to change sanitary towels or tampons women with children normally uh, a child is taken to the loo by their mother and let me tell you that takes bleeding ages if you mm. both need the loo mm. women suffering from urinary tract infections interestingly eight times more common in women than men mm. so that's why yeah. women need more loos this myth that women like going to the loos for a goss and a ponder really persists I was in Topshop actually a few months ago and the queue they've got a loo in their um, big store in Oxford Circus they've got some loos downstairs so often I go in just to use the loos. I do that in Liberty. And I might grab a bubbleology on my way out. <laughs> and the queue for the women's was insane and the men's was empty. So I followed a woman's lead and I just nipped into the men's, hoping if I got told off I could just use pregnancy as an excuse, which it is incidentally. I go about five times in the night alone. And I heard a man approaching, chuckling, saying, imagine if I use the ladies. And I really wanted to quit back. Imagine if you actually needed to. Yeah. I've never seen a queue outside a man's loo. Yeah. Um, It's interesting that that's at the Old Vic, because I have to say my resounding memories of the Old Vic is basically being halfway through a 12-hour play and thinking, Christ, I need a gin and tonic. Then having to stand in a snake queue that goes up the stairs to to the entrance for the whole interval and sometimes barely even making it to the loo. That is my resounding memory of the old Vic. I actually can't even remember any of the plays I've seen there. Just the loo. I mean, obviously the old Vic is a a microcosm of loos, a fairly rarefied microcosm of loos. But it does, I think it does reflect a wider issue that um, uh, is important when we're kind of making progress in how we accommodate um, men and women. And and it's a big part of equality is... Um, and that's why Caroline's book is freaking fascinating mm. because I just didn't know what the actual data was. And the data shows that there will always be a problem if men and women have the same amount of lose. Yeah. There's always going to be cues. Yeah. And that actually... It doesn't make any sort of logistical sense, really, when you think about it. And I think it does raise an interesting point about gender-neutral lose, which are a really flammable subject, but having sharing lose does become more complicated when there are urinals in there mm. because women don't want to see men's gingangoolies and men don't really want to whip out their wanger yeah. in front of well I'm sure whip some, out their wanger I'm sure some men would want to whip out their wanger in front of a queue of ladies but lots of people don't I know it's a very very complicated discussion and one that takes would take much more kind of time and thought for us to really dig into yeah, but just personally from my experience I always feel so much more relaxed and like it makes total sense when I'm in a gender neutral loo and as you said it just gives more space 
I think there needs to be somewhere where the urinals are, though, where, like, maybe that needs to be a separate... Yeah. Maybe it's a separate entrance. It's complicated. Mm. They've the it's, yeah. Poor old Vic, the More Lose campaign, starts off so promisingly. <laughs> Yet again, they've reached a, a stumbling block. I have an absolutely solid, middle-of-the-road, totally robust and reliable politician non-story for you this week, Pandora. <laughs> In the form of Tory MP Rory Stewart... Uh, who was interviewed this week about uh, standing to be London Mayor, and he was asked about his favourite London boozer. My favourite London boozer? God, I'm not a big boozer. It's a, <laughs> it's a terrible question. Okay, you don't have to have, you know, alcohol in a pub. But... You don't have to have alcohol. But no, I, I, I like... Um, I, I, I'm afraid I'm the kind of guy who spends his time going to present Marjorie. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, you may lose some votes there. Dolly, you love Pret and Roger, You tweeted something this morning that you were worried about Pret. That I was worried about Pret because I saw everyone was tweeting about Pret and everyone was giving their hot take on Pret. And I was like, oh no, Pret cannot become problematic. If Pret becomes problematic, I've lo- lost every pleasure in the world. And <laughs> The problematic uh, fade. <laughs> the problematic fade. And they were tweeting about it because of him. And they were tweeting about it because of him. And then I watched it and I have to say, and this is the first and last time you'll ever say, in a Tory MP's defence from me, but in his defence, there's nothing that I find more annoying than this very historic thing we have in um, discussions around kind of the humanity of British politicians than this sort of performative pint-loving. Do you know what I mean? Kind of like loving the pub as if that suddenly usurps, like that's more important than any sort of other indicators of personality or indeed policy proposed policy making. In Nigel Farage's case though, I don't think it's performative. I think Definitely he really not. does love the bubble. But, but that I think was quite worrying because I remember the like endless pints and fags with Nigel Farage was something that I think endeared him to people. And I don't think that like a propensity towards loving pints and look, it's very much a pastime of mine that I favour, but I don't think that that's... It's weird it's such a British social indicator of being, like, a top lad, like a it's great relati- person. the relatability thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I think... I actually find Rory Stewart really interesting. He's um, he's unbelievably clever. Interviews with him are kind of riveting. My favourite fact about uh, Rory Stewart, which also has a sort of tragic tinge to me, is that his real name is Roderick. Roderick. Rod Stewart. Yeah, yeah. Sort of brilliant and heartbreaking at the same time. I know, just to circle back. There has been, speaking of Ferraris, there has been tonnes and tonnes of the stuff over Joker in the last week. Latest is that people are walking out of the cinema. So it's not that they're not going. The film's actually broken box office records. But, um, so I think if anything, the controversy is fueling ticket sales. But not everyone is staying. Have you seen all of the chatter around this? No, I haven't seen anything. So Joker's a psychological thriller based on the Batman comics, um, where Joaquin Phoenix plays a comedian called Arthur Fleck, who turns into the infamous villain, the Joker. The first I read of rumblings around this was when Joaquin walked out of a Telegraph interview after the journalist asked if he thought it would fuel incel culture um, because the Joker wreaks havoc after falling in love with Sophie, a woman he barely knows. Joaquin actually comes back into the interview and says, I just needed an hour because I was really taken aback by your question. I hadn't thought about that and looked, I think, quite haunted by it. Of course, it then got turned into celebrity storms out of interview because he's asked a difficult question. No, if if that's true, I really respect him for for taking a moment to be thoughtful about his response to that. And for coming back and admitting it, it... (sighs) 
having having read a lot around it, I'm quite surprised that that did never cross his mind or, or the producer's mind. Um, what do you think? Will you go see it? It's not it's not a sort of film that I would have seen. Probably that does sound like that's quite a mass reaction, and I don't think that sort of reaction happens off the back of hysteria. Is it something you would see? No, I wouldn't have seen it anyway just because I don't really go to Marvel films or mm. comic films or I don't really go to see that many films anyway. So no, I would never go and see a film like that. Um, but I think I would feel particularly uneasy now. It, it always makes me, whenever I read something like this, that does always make me think of American Psycho and think, God, that would never get made now. Although I think it's quite specific in that... Um, because Christian Bell doesn't play an incel, you know, he gets tons of women, women love him. Um, whereas, play, he plays a psycho, like it's a psychological portrait. Yeah, I mean, this is still, this is this is like classified as a psychological thriller. Um, and I think I read a piece on The Guardian a while ago now, a month ago probably, in defence of it saying um, he doesn't, he doesn't go and wreak revenge on Sophie. It's not, so it's, you know, conflating it with um, involuntary celibacy is maybe a bit lazy, but it's, it sounds it sounds really violent. So I probably wouldn't mm. go see it. A rather gross aside: Gary Glitter's set to make hundreds of thousands of pounds from the film as his 1972 song "Rock and Roll Part Two is played for two minutes, rather ominously, oh as Arthur God. transforms from comedian into killer and dances down the stairs. This seems so daft. That's Could they not have so, lined yeah. someone else's pockets with the soundtrack? God, Who I in that room isn't like, oh, mate, but you know how Gary Glitter's yeah. Yeah, a pedo, you know? Like, everyone knows it. That's weird, though, because oh, I just need to really, like, interrogate my response to that because my initial response was, oh, yeah, that feels... Like, particularly with the subject matter, that feels just completely inappropriate and and ill thought out but I mean this just goes back to this conversation that you and I have over and over and over and over again lots of people who made great work turn out to be monsters and what do we do with that great work if that piece of music is completely the most fitting piece of music for that sequence of the film I think it comes back we do most interestingly to the kind of most clear definition that I learned of cancel culture recently, which is that very often when we talk about cancel culture, it's just rhetoric. Like Taylor Swift got cancelled, Lena Dunn got cancelled, but they're not cancelled. They're not cancelled because exactly. it's not fiscally enforced. Yeah. Basically, you're only cancelled if, like Harvey Weinstein, your entire career and money gets taken away. It's the same as talking about anything, really. It's like it's like when you talk about. Um, Diversity, like until actually there's like a financial yeah. uh, transaction taking place, nothing's really changing until until money, you know, until economics comes into it, nothing's really changing. So I think it's the fact that he's profiting from it and profiting from this film. Um, it's but very weird. The words Gary Glitter when you said it, I was like, I haven't heard that in years. He's still incarcerated, isn't he? Yeah, he was sentenced to 16 years in 2015. He's tattooed his eyebrows on as well he's got that strange beard yeah not a um, comforting man do you know what his luxury item was on desert island discs what a blow up doll 
I know. Oh. I actually think I actually think they've removed it from the archives quite, quite understandably. Did you listen to that one? I listened to it years ago. I think before the before he was found guilty. Yeah. What does Sue Lawley say when he? I can't remember. But it's just interesting, isn't it? We we talk about this all the time. With you know, this is what we talked about so much with uh, Leaving Neverland. That once you know this truth about someone, when you go back and look at so much of what they did and said, and it's often so in plain sight, the criminality of who they are. Yeah. Not believe I know. I know. I know. What's in the mailbag this week, doll? God from dolls to doll. <laughs> We had some lovely responses via email and Twitter about Amru Al-Khadi, our guest from last week, who came on to talk about their memoir, Unicorn, and their struggle to find an identity for themselves as a British Iraqi drag queen. This listener is referring to the moment in the book where Amru is on stage in Edinburgh as their drag queen alter ego, Glamru, and they spot six Muslim women in hijabs, front row, and believes they've come to tell them off for betraying Allah. And it throws them so much that afterwards they throw up. But then they come and see them in their dressing room and actually it's not what they thought. They loved the show. Our listener writes, I just felt compelled to tell you how comforting I found Amru's story, particularly the story about the Muslim women turning up to their show. The idea of all of one's worlds colliding and it being a disaster is exactly how I feel and the anxiety that hangs over me on a daily basis. It was heartening to hear the experience ultimately was a positive one. I also identified entirely with the observation they made about the idea of losing one's sense of self entirely. I can't wait to read their book and hear more of their story. Thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. Speaking of drag, I learnt a fun fact from RuPaul on the Graham Norton show. I was watching on iPlayer last night. Drag comes from a stage direction, a Shakespearean stage direction, and it stands for dressed as girl. Wow! So RuPaul imparted that fact. Also in the mailbag, a listener named Sarah wrote in to say that her labradoodle Ted is so calm that he only ever barks softly in his dreams. Myself and Wally Conran are both humbled. As you should be. I love it when our show turns into a sort of local radio phone-in. <laughs> what have you been enjoying this week, Panda? I went to see Zadie Smith and Diane Evans, who wrote Ordinary People. Oh, I'm so jealous. I can't wait to hear. How was it? In conversation last week. Um, I mean, Zadie Smith, and you could tell everyone felt the same. Um, I shared a few of her lyrical sound bites on Twitter and a few people replied who had been there or replied, you know, who had wanted to go. And I think a lot of us were, like, moved by the same stuff that she says. But there are two coexisting facts about Zayn Smith. Number one, she is just ineffably cool because she is so her own person. Yeah. And maybe that comes from, you know, becoming very well-known when she was really young in the pre-digital age. And she also has... Um, and I do think Sally Rooney's quite like her in this regard. She also has, like a very, I think, different life to kind of most famous novelists because she still teaches at NYU and she's got, as as is famously known, she's got absolutely no social media and... um, I think think that's the bottom line with it. I do. Yeah, and I, I mean, that definitely... She said at the beginning she felt like she missed out and now she feels like she absolutely does not miss out and she's like also where do people get time from every day but she was talking about and I think this is really interesting she was talking about how writers aren't very into plot and they love language but readers love plot Mm. so that's like a bit of a battle for her because she knows that that's what her audience likes but as a writer her and Diane Evans were saying that they actually 
like language and that's how I feel actually but sometimes I love a book and a friend will go but nothing happens and I won't have even noticed that nothing happens because yeah. I would just love the way they talk to each other yeah and and Zadie says our lives are plotless even though we try and narrativize them and lie about them and that was her as well kind of talking about social media when she talks about narrativizing them and she talked a lot about um I suppose intrinsic and extrinsic but in like she talks about anxiety in a really un-anxiety making way um it's probably because she's removed from the parlance online parlance that's so well trodden well she says she was like i was filled with anxiety as anyone else and i felt like she was kind of saying that to remind people that she wasn't like implacable yeah and she said i wonder every day if i'm doing it right and she says the story that we're telling in our heads and this is so important to remember for everyone actually the story that we're telling in our heads as we're walking down the street is not shared by anyone else you are trapped in your own flesh cage flesh cage God, she's good and she also says the feeling of discomfort is life to get rid of it is not to be human which again i think is really important so important a lot about how we're living our life now is just friction free yeah life getting easier and easier and easier and we're expecting to become happier and happier and happier but that's just not the way we're meant to be built she was very funny as well she said she took a she said she was hungover and she went to her children's parents evening she loves drinking Zadie Smith it's something I find quite enjoyable (laughs) she took a sheet from her parents evening where her children's parents evening where it told six-year-olds how to write stories and she said she used it as a found object um and that there was as much wisdom in this sheet as there was in anything else. <laughs> and she said this thing that I find really interesting, that people assume that writers love writing or that she is Zadie Smith, must. And she implied, you know, she implied that. She obviously didn't say, even I was Zadie Smith. She said, I could live without writing. I could not live without reading. Yeah. And funnily enough, something I've always been really curious about is when people refuse to read anything when they're writing. I just wouldn't know how to... Where to start? And yeah. she says that actually she's... Her, her writing is, you know, imbued with the kind of furious reading, the furious writing of everyone else. Her references that she sort of, you know, will jump from, like, Simone de Beauvoir to um, Hegel to something really contemporary, but it's really fluid and completely non-pretentious. And what you can tell is... So I said there are two things about her. One is that she's ineffably cool, um, and the other is that she is a massive nerd. Yeah, she's yeah. really really smart she's a massive nerd she also revealed that she writes in this complex in New York and the floor above her is Jonathan Safran Fur, which made Diane Evans just laugh out loud she was like what is the barometer for entry to this <laughs> literary hub that you write in but um, it was completely wonderful to see her speak even in her most like casual and unprepared um, way because you know she did, you could tell she didn't come to that with any kind of grand thing she thought she should say it, it was it was to promote her new book of short stories grand union um but it was more just like zadie smith's musings on life which is i'm just... i'm so jealous that that you went to go see her because truly i think the thing that is so breathtaking about zadie smith and i do think is not only because she is so clearly and i don't use this word loosely and lightly a genius but i think it is that she operates in an orbit so removed from online culture, that is what affords her this incredible, rock-solid sense of self and belief in her 
ability to think out loud. And I think that it, there's a reason it feels so radical and refreshing and different and profound. And it's because the rest of us every day are absorbing the voices of thousands and thousands and the yeah. thoughts of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, like a cacophonous noise without even realising. And she's completely removed from that. Um, but the the joy of her is you listen to Zadie Smith in an interview, think out loud, say something completely off the cuff and her meandering thoughts are sharper mm. and more insightful than the most insightful sentence I will ever write in a premeditated way in my whole life it's like it's just a joy to behold it's like bliss to watch a mind think like that Talk wasn't recorded, but my favourite interview with her that I've heard is the one she did on the Toure show. Yeah, Panda and I refer to this interview all the time. I listen to it like a favourite album. You must listen to it if you haven't. It's so good. She is really inspiring. But what was lovely as well is it was an in-conversation with Diane Evans, so obviously it was about her book, but she also would refer several times to how perceptive ordinary people is, which it is. It's a phenomenal piece of yeah. work, Ordinary People. Um, one of my favourite books this year. Did it come out this year? Last year. Last year. Same with me. And funnily enough, they both grew up in North London, very near each other. Very close to where we are right now. Oh, let's go find them. Fuck the rest of this record. <laughs> let's go pound the streets of Kensal and go find them. Um, I This week I read Olive again by Elizabeth Strout, which is the sequel to Olive Kitteridge. Oh, yeah. And, oh my God, I think it's even better than Olive Kitteridge. There's been a lot of hype for this sequel because Olive Kittridge, which came out in 2016, was a massive seller. And I I thought it was even better. Olive, again. So same Olive Kittridge, but she's older and so are most of the people around her. It deals even more and even more movingly um, with how confronting old ages, memory, incontinence, death, lost love, dashed hopes, cantankerousness, depression, old dreams that no longer hold um, this is just my sort of book (laughs) but (laughs) truly it is but also it's um it's really lovely and it's really funny and it's oh it's so so good i enjoyed it so much and i can't wait for it to come out and to see everyone else enjoying it i think it's really hard to write a follow-up to a book that's been so popular yeah for some reason in my head i thought how did helen fielding get on with bridget jones was her sequel popular I think it was, but I agree. And Jojo Moyes as well is a great example of a follow-up being as yeah. strong as the as an initial massive smash with the same character. With the same character, yeah. I, I really, it's on my it's on my list. Those two books because I, I just trust anything that you adore, and you really have adored that kind of. Franchise. People just love Elizabeth Strout, and I think you really would as well. I think she really fits into the canon of. Um, she's often put in the same canon as um, Anne Tyler. And Anne Patchett. Yeah. Um, both of whom I've read, but not like extensively. But interestingly, my sister, who's 15 years older than me, so not the millennial generation, um, absolutely loves Anne Tyler and Anne Patchett. So they were, I think, very symbolic maybe for women reading in the, I'm trying to think, would it have been 90s? Yes. But both of them are still really revered now. And um, Patrick's got a new book out and there's been lots of... um, Which I really want to read. The Dutch Uh, House. Yeah. Yeah, I want to read that. Um, So I think she sort of belongs in a canon with them. And 
lastly, a little book I have been really enjoying um, is called Shelf Respect, a book lover's defence by Annie Austin. And it's been making me laugh. It's what my mum would call a loo book. So something to dip into during a session. <laughs> oh, my God. So here is... Some, when you're um, in the old Vic. <laughs> holding up the queue. Here are some of my um, favourite bits. Hold on. I like this by Abraham Lincoln. So it's kind of a mix of, like, facts about books and libraries, random lists, like... The Ten Books in Osama Bin Laden's Bookshelf are quotes about books. So this is by Abraham Lincoln. Books serve to show a man that those original thoughts of his aren't very new after all. This is quite interesting. The te- You'll love this. The ten most frequently selected books on Desert Island Discs Ooh. since Castaways were first asked to choose in 1951. Quite dry, these tomes. Yeah, just because people are showing off. It's all performative. The Divine Comedy by Dante. Ugh. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. A History of the English-Speaking Peoples by Churchill. Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. That makes sense. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Oh, fuck off. No, that would not be anyone's book. That's not a real... (laughs) It's not a real book. The Wind and the Willows by Kenneth Graham. The Iliad slash the Odyssey by Homer. A la Recherche du Temps Perdu by Marcel Proust. Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien. War and Peace by Tolstoy. Do you know, they often do choose War and Peace comes up a lot because there's that sense of, oh, well, I'll finally have all the time to read War and Peace. They do often (laughs) say... that's why Debbie Harry picked it. (laughs) They also often choose Proust. Um, But Dickens, I find, comes up a lot. For some reason... I'm sounding like such a philistine. For some reason, people are obsessed with Dickens. I know that Dickens is a very is a great and funny writer, but that's the one that I hear over and over again. I mean, Dickens wasn't in here. I'd rather read and have read Dickens than um, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. This will make you laugh. Engelbert Humperdinck, who really I don't think people talk enough about, <laughs> just because of his name, plumped for his own autobiography. Oh, I love that. That's like Christa Berg, the singer, chose all his own songs for his records. Did he? Yes. That's extraordinary. Like, we all know that you go onto Desert Island Discs for promotion, but... I know. It's, um... Surely... You what would your... a little bit more opaque. What would your book be, your, your Desert... If, if you were on Desert Island Discs? My favourite book? No, it's not even your favourite, is it? I think it's more specific than that. It's like, what would you want to be stranded with for eternity? It would probably be like pop culture philosophy. I don't even know if they'd like being called that. So it would be Milan Kundera or it would be Alan Botton. Um, so like very digestible philosophical stories played out in human behaviour. That sounds really lofty. No, no, because I think that you're someone who really likes engaging with the organism of the world and humans existing in the world. So I think... That makes sense that you would really miss that, I think. They're both really easy books to read as well. So Essays in Love by Alan Bottom and The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Both of them have written loads of stuff, but both of those I read when I was really young um, and understood, unlike Mm. a lot of what I read and didn't really understand. I've got one fat left for you in self-respect. The most famous bookcase ever to have crossed the earth is the Billy Bookcase produced by IKEA. I've got three in my flat. Three. (laughs) More than a hundred. Oh, God, no, that makes me sound like, you know, one of those MPs who reveal that they have, like, four kitchens or whatever. I have three Billy bookshelves in my house. They are sturdy, simple to design and easy to assemble. More than 110 million of them have been made since they rolled off the production line in 1979. 
Currently, the Billy Bookcase sells somewhere north of 7 million a year. In Britain alone, 60,000 units are sold every year, theoretically providing shelf space for 90 million books every single year. <laughs> what a cool little book. That's such a such a nice good present filler. idea, yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. Um, what have you been enjoying this week, Dolly? I loved reading Annie Lord on the subject of breakups for Vice, specifically a breakup that she's in the midst of. She's a few months out of a, I think it's five-year relationship, and the piece is her kind of walking through, walking her reader through her kind of journey of how she's processing it. Uh, but obviously it's not, that makes it sound um, very sort of solipsistic. It's it's more a kind of general examination of of breakups and heartbreak and it really is a kind of larger look at the quite deeply philosophical and I think unsolvable question which is is it worth loving if the impact of heartbreak will potentially usurp the act of loving and being loved and does the ultimate sort of destruction of a breakup undo everything that love built in us and that we built in the other person is it a sort of contention of that quote, better to have loved? Yeah, exactly, loved exactly. And I have to say, without giving too much away, it's a short piece, but I just would love everyone to read it because it's so beautiful. She, even in the midst of this dark time, is just really hopeful. And it's devastating. And it's also very specific. She weaves in the kind of specificities of of her relationship and this man that she fell in love with. And it's it really captures the mood of a breakup in that there's this like sour sharpness to it, but also this kind of serenity, this weird serenity and this kind of wistfulness. And it's I haven't, thank God, <laughs> very lucky, I haven't had a breakup in a very long time, but it really was so evocative. It took me straight back to what that feeling of like a long-term relationship ending is like and uh, I'd just like to read a bit of it for you when someone you love leaves you memories flush back into your mind with immense clarity Joe staying late in the library with me explaining Kant until I could rephrase the Routledge guide enough to get a 2-1 the way his shaved head felt like the soft side of Velcro how he slept with his body flat face down against the mattress in a position that no one else could possibly find comfortable the way he would grab my belly during sex as though it was perfect and not something to lose laughing at my parents and during a midlife crisis via painting and repainting the living room in colours with names like duck's fart or syphilis wisp eating fried chicken in bed and telling each other it was okay because we changed the sheets after which would have been fine except we never changed the sheets after i saw him the other day it's been a month he was wearing a jumper i had never seen before he's bought a pasta maker got a new job has started going to the gym he went on a date with a girl who's on the new Bumble poster. After we hugged, one of my hairs stuck to his jumper. I was going to pick it off, but then I thought, I want him to keep it. At the moment, days are spent scrolling through Twitter until 2pm, until I realise I haven't eaten anything yet. Shreddies and then more Twitter. Sitting at the bottom of the shower until the water runs cold. Typing out long texts and then deleting them. This pain is not unique. Start typing, can you die from, into Google, and heartbreak is second only to a hangover. God, it is really evocative. It is, Oof, isn't it? Heartbreak is brutal. I know, I know. Anyway, it's now the gateway for me into Annie Lord's writing because I just think it's uh, totally brilliant and so is she. 
Have you watched Liam Gallagher's 73 Questions for Vogue? No! I forgot that he'd done that. That is hilarious. Do they have many men doing 73 Questions? No, and I have to say... What's it? I doubt they'll be doing it again. Shall we insert some of it here? The bit that I would like to insert is so hilarious because he... I don't think he quite understands the format of it. God love him. 72 Questions... Panda, for anyone who's not familiar, how would you explain it? It's this sort of very choreographed... Yeah, American Vogue normally do it when they've gone, done a cover interview. So people yeah. like Margot Robbie, Victoria Beckham, Lena Dunham, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Was she on their Yeah, cover? she did a great one, yeah. Yeah, and they sort of follow them around. Normally their home, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's wasn't their home, but normally it's like, hi, come in, and you follow them around the house while they're sort of doing chores, quote-unquote. It's very asked, scripted. And they're asked off the cuff. Questions. Where was Liam Gallagher for his? Hampstead Heath. He's just ambling around aimlessly in a parka. He's, I was going to say, is he in a fucking parka? And he's... The reason it's so funny, because lots of people I know have watched it have said they found it so uncomfortable and just really strange and, and not funny at all. I loved it because it's so clear that he just hasn't, like, properly been briefed on what 73 Questions is. Or he has, and more likely just, like, doesn't give a shit about it. So his answers... Normally, as Panda said, they're like very premeditated and, and it's like sometimes it is literally choreographed where like in Anna Wintour's one, there are people like zipping in and out to kind of show the hustle and bustle of the Vogue office and they come in and sort of drop a cameo line and then they kind of zoom back out. But Liam Gallagher, he'll be like every other question. He's like, oh, uh, oh, I don't know. I'll uh, have to come back to you on that one. <laughs> like, I haven't seen a Liam Gallagher or heard a Liam Gallagher interview for ages. It's normally Noel that's... Yeah, doing them at the moment. What's he promoting? I don't know. Is it's he on all the cover of American. It's Vogue? all very weird. He's no, not on the cover. I don't think so. He basically doesn't know the answer to most things, um, but he does. Which is fine. We're a big fan of not totally knowing the answer. fine. Um, but he does have an immediate answer for. I think it's what his spirit animal is. If I found you at a pub, what would you be drinking? All of them. I like them all. Lager, Guinness. And how do you prepare your tea? I like it with milk, no sugar. What would you say is your spirit animal? Dolphin. And joy to the world, Joan and Jerrica is back. I tweeted this and my God, the response of excitement when people realised they were back. It's so good. For anyone who doesn't know, Joan and Jerrica are mine and Pandora's probably favourite podcast of all time. They're fictional agony aunts played... Satirical agony aunts. Satirical agony aunts played by Vicky Pepperdine and Julia Davis. And you can't do them justice with the description. They're filthy and very unpolitically correct. Yeah. And this new series that has been hotly anticipated introduces the Sheepoo. Oh, did you listen to it? It, Isn't it appalling? I think it's the most appalling episode they've done so far. (laughs) It's disgusting and I fucking loved it. Is it her husband who loves the sheepy? No, it's her daughter. So one of the one of the agony aunts is called Jericho, and she has this daughter who's my favourite character that they talk about because they talk about people in in their lives. And the daughter is this sounds like this slightly belligerent, difficult character called Cardinal. So it's Cardinal who and, likes the sheepy, yeah, and who discards a femidoms. Uh, <laughs> On the street as she walks to work. And and the, uh, Dolly, I think, Dolly, my favourite thing about... Um, it just because it's so 
bold and so appreciated in this time is that they are rampantly anti-feminist. Yes. <laughs> they are not internalised misogynists, they are externalised misogynists. And so they both talk about how much they love a femidom and how sad it is that femidoms have sort of had their day because, you know, it's incredibly unfair for men to have to wear condoms. I and think I think they, they go into quite intricate parlance about... Yeah, like, why should he have to suffocate his poor old todger? It's so good. Uh, do you know, I'm very aware that we could have more delicate is listening to the high-low uh, this morning on the on your commute. So I found, like, the only clip from the return, amazing return episode of Joan and Jerrica for the second series that doesn't involve... Um, the she-poo. Which doesn't exist, by the, the way, before she Because <laughs> you can't do... A, you can't do a poo in a cart. Well... <laughs> Oh. It's a question for Joan and Jericho. Um, and this is Joan talking about her husband, Ralph, uh, who's been in a coma for a while. How are you, Joan? I'm actually very well, um, simply because there's a little bit of progress with Ralph. Oh. Okay. Uh, as you know, he, he came out of the coma yes. um, for, um, well, half a day. Yes. Um, we ended up of... with a bloodied nose, didn't yes. we, Joan? Yes, he, uh, he punched me. Good and proper. Yes. Um, which was not very nice. No. And they say he didn't know what he was doing. No, so. but I think he did. Yes. And consequently, having chatted things through with Mahmoud, yes. um, we decided to put him back into a coma. Right. Um, you know, an induced medical coma. It's yes. all above board. Oh, absolutely. It's deeper than the, the one he was in before because we felt he needed to stay under. Well, I was going to say, if he keeps coming out of it and boxing you on the nose. Yes. And... Um, um, I think that, uh, you know, he needs a little bit more time to have a think, really, yes. if that's what you do there. I don't know what goes on. I'm sure um, there's time to think in a medically induced coma. Yes, absolutely. That's partly what they're for, isn't it? Exactly. That's my understanding. Support for the Hilo comes from Stripe and Stair. Stripe and Stair have been called the most comfortable knickers in the world. I have three pairs of them and I have to say, I do know that I'm in for a comfortably sheathed jacksie on the days that I pull them out from the knicker drawer. Stripe and Stair knickers don't ride up so there's no more hungry bum. This is a well-documented affliction of mine. I even wrote an entire article about it once. <laughs> so I'm always happy to hear of anti-hungry bum undergarments. They're so comfortable you forget you're wearing them, leaving you free to take on the day. Can I tell you a secret, Dolly? I was wearing a pair this morning. Why aren't you any more? Because I like to feel loosey-goosey and easy-breezy for the high-low record. <laughs> Every pair of Stripe and Stare is a pair of guilt-free ninnies because <laughs> they are sustainably sourced. Only 2% of the underwear market is sustainably sourced, which is pretty shocking for a product that we all wear every day, unless you're a real dame, in which case... Hola! <laughs> I take both my hat and my knickers off too. <laughs> Stripe and Stare knickers are sourced from beechwood trees and are softer than cotton, use 95% less water in their production and give no VPL as they lie perfectly flat against the skin. Stripe and Stare have been a hit with the press, having been recently described by the Evening Standard as insanely cool and described by the Telegraph Stella as the comfiest knickers around. Pandora Sykes describes them as the knickers I wear every day. And no, I was not paid to say that. Hilo listeners can get 20% off their knickknacks by using the code HILO on www.stripeandstare.com at the checkout. They're also available at Selfridges and on shopbop.com for international listeners. Many thanks to Stripe and Stare, both from us and our bottoms. On all the front pages in the last week... 
Prince Harry has released a furious statement about the tabloid bullying of his wife, Meghan. He says that he's been a silent witness to her suffering, which he compared to the vilification of his mother, Princess Diana. My deepest fear is history repeating itself, he wrote. I've seen what happens when someone I love is commoditized to the point that they are no longer treated or seen as a real person. The couple is suing the Mail on Sunday for printing Thomas Markle's letter to his daughter, which was leaked by Thomas Markle, he says, in defence of himself. I found this letter incredibly moving. I can't even imagine what it must feel like to feel like history is repeating itself with the most important woman in your life. Again, Princess Diana, after all, famously died being pursued by paparazzi, although important to note that her driver was also over the limit and whatever you think of Megan I just don't see how you can deny that the criticism has been extraordinary Mm. and voluble Mm. and a lot of what she has done is exactly what Kate has done so in terms of charity initiatives or um the cost of refurbishing their house they got a lot of criticism for refurbishing a frogmore cottage even though it cost half what um Kate and William spent on their house so a lot of it yeah is a reflection of what Kate's really done and yet this latent fury exists I too found it moving and also this is probably a retrograde thing to say I did find it uh, shocking I think just because it was such an expressive and impassioned and uncontained statement from a member of the royal family which I would argue is a good thing but it did feel like perhaps he's taking different advice or new advice or that this marks a change or that a a floodgate is kind of a new floodgate is opening I sort of I suppose witnessed a tiny bit of the wrath towards her when last Christmas I wrote which is really odd I I don't think I've ever written about the royal family before and I don't intend to again but I wrote two pieces about her for L and GQ respectively which were after the time when she'd been at the British Fashion Awards and she'd been cradling her pregnancy bump and people had been so angry and I was really riveted by this response to her because I think that the pregnant body is um political anyway I'm still getting Twitter responses about it now. What were, what were the criticisms? It was everything from she wasn't really pregnant, racist abuse, how self-obsessed and narcissistic she was, you know, her being too Hollywood, all the stuff I kind of talked about, to be honest, in the in the piece. But it was exhausting receiving them and they weren't even about me and I wasn't offended by them because I, I'm not a massive Megan fan. I'm, I'm impartial. I'm, I'm biased. I think she married someone she loves and I think she's doing her best. But honestly, I did find receiving them more than anything I've ever written about before and the going on for so long yeah. it's been almost a, a year um just like tiring just as someone that's just written like a couple of pieces about her I do not understand the conversations around Meghan Markle and when I was in America uh last week what week are we on week before last I um my American publisher was talking to some people who worked at my American publisher and they said it's a really similar conversation that's happening in the US I just don't I thought they loved to get it no they said that there's still this like um there's still this antagonism towards her and and a sense of judgment and being above one station or something I I don't know I it's so weird for me because I have zero opinion on Meghan Markle which is why it's so obvious to me that this has to be racially motivated because why else would a group of people dislike a woman so vehemently who says like the most innocuous things and wears a series of like innocuous dresses and yet she's like 
the way people talk about her as being this like highly divisive figure I just don't fucking understand it yeah I think that's really interesting and I want to come back to that um but I found the responses which I want to share with you from the older guard um quite funny and also just really predictable and maybe what you said about finding it shocking to hear a royal talking like this um lots of them have found this too emotional an outburst for a role which is possibly part of the problem i think it is definitely idea that you know they're not real humans yeah um the royal biographer penny juna bustled this feels to me like an over emotional and somewhat ill-advised outburst most extraordinary i just find it hilarious most extraordinary so funny but it's also as if coming out to defend the mother of your child and your wife against this like everyday abuse um, in the public arena as if that's this like total non sequitur of behaviour just like it makes no sense literally the idea of her bristling (laughs) Princess Diana's former secretary Patrick Jefferson wrote a piece for the Guardian where he called it a blunderbuss I'm obsessed with that word never heard of that no means doing something with a lack of precision he said and I think this is very true actually and quite perceptive he said public sympathy is notoriously volatile and he said he thought it could backfire he compared Prince Harry's letter to the legal battle that Diana had when she sued the Mirror for publishing photos of her working out in a gym saying that he had seen that the experience was counterproductive because when the when she saw the paparazzi after the settlement, he said that the press pack wore expressions that were anything except contrite. So I suppose the idea that this could make it worse for him and for her. Mm. I didn't really understand how it could get any worse. I'm also I'm I'm almost sad actually that Paul Burrell didn't comment on this because uh, Princess Diana's former butler, who turned himself into a reality TV star of sorts in 2004, has been commenting on royal issues. He's just like he's rent a quote now, exactly. Literally goes on like yeah, celebrity entertainment shows. I think that lack of precision uh, that Patrick Jefferson referred to, I think that is actually a key indicator with looking at this sort of fussy, pathetic obsession with Meghan Markle, with Meghan Markle as a whole. And I think, I think she's not a precise, contained person. I think she's a vocal person I think she's expressive and flawed and guess what like maybe a bit narcissistic like fucking every other (laughs) human on this earth and I think I think in the context of the kind of bum clenched royal family where one's personality (laughs) and and business and private life is is kept so much out of public view you know like what's going on with Prince Andrew at the moment I think that having someone for whom the light the light is just slightly more on the mess of their humanness, which is neither good nor bad. I really don't want to deify Meghan Markle. As I said, I am completely Meghan Markle neutral. I don't think that the woman is a saint and I have spent no time really speculating on that. But I do think she does just seem like a woman as well as a member of the royal family. And I think that that makes us uncomfortable. I think seeing that much of her personality particularly because she has this whole history of being in the public eye prior to life in the royal family i think that we conflate that somehow with disrespect or narcissism or self-involvement i think that's the problem is that unlike all other people that marry into the royal family even if they're already royal they've existed in the kind of shadowy celebrity yeah. rather than like snapped with their yoga mat whilst buying a green juice exactly or, um being on a tv show like suits 
watching series nine fucking loving it um and she, she loves suits but she also i do and she also said she segued from like one form of celebrity into another so it's not alien to her she's not building it from the ground up she's kind of it's like a transference which means she brings and i think this is the massive problem is that she didn't want to come quietly and you mentioned her innocuous a-line dresses they're not always that innocuous. There's that £56,000 Ralph and Rousseau dress she wore in her engagement pictures. It's just, people just can't cope with the Hollywood. I also wonder if there's quite a lot of envy, this idea that she wants to have her cake and eat it. You know, she wants the status and she wants the kind of philanthropic role and she wants the, so all the charity work that she yeah. does and she is really integral in that. She wants the media role, you know, editing Vogue. She wants the fashion designer role. She's got a new collection of Close that with Misha Nanu and uh, Jigsaw, I think it is. Again, like, tied to her charity. You know, there is... I understand why she wants to do everything. And like, yeah. and she's got the platform to do it. But, well, one of the biggest criticisms at the moment that we've discussed before, I think, that rolls on, is that they're vocal about protecting the environment, Harry and Meghan, but they frequently fly in a private jet. I understand that criticism, but it's that is every celebrity protesting climate change. There were 114 private jets for the 300 guests who attended Google's Climate Change Summit in August. I think it's tricky, that part of the debate. I think lots of people who are passionate about climate change still fly. And the alternative is to not fly, which means presumably that your your work would be impacted and also that you would never be able to travel abroad. Mm. And that is a luxury, but that's also, like, education for lots of people. Um... So I think it's like an incredibly hard one. It's basically a huge deal not to fly. It's sort of impossible to get yeah. anywhere. And look at Greta Thunberg getting to New York by boat. Five of the crew were flown in in order to work on the boat that she crossed on. So it ended mm. up costing five flights. So it's mm. literally impossible right now for there to mm. be a solution. Um, of course, you could argue in turn that they could have teamed up more on the private jets. Probably quite a lot of people come from the same place. They've also said before that it wasn't their private jet they won. It was Elton John's. I know that sounds like they're plucking it whatever it is straws chickens to be fair that makes him sound much more relatable and down to earth and accessible I think I don't understand if they had their own private jet though they actually fly I think don't they? Harry and uh, Kate and William often fly economy which must be a bit of a nightmare with all the camera phones but anyway large scale issues like this are not easily solvable and to reduce it to kind of a specific issue about Harry and Meghan and more so Meghan is really mad because it's such a complicated issue but you know it is also a very unnuanced view and maybe it's reflective of how binary the world is right now good, bad, right, wrong etc. Yeah I agree with you and it is a tricky sticking point that conversation about flying and climate change activism because it does feel counterproductive but equally I'm just of the very kind of mimsy school of activism of something is better than nothing me too and Folly and I were on a train yesterday actually from uh, Cornwall to London which was uh, a very long journey five hour journey and that's a long train there was a group of extinction rebellion activists middle-aged women in very high spirits who uh decided to sing protest songs uh, from Truro to Paddington. Oh my God, that's a long way. All, all in harmony. Lots of multi-layered harmonies. And Farley was sort of furiously whispering to me the, the hypocrisy of, you know, the, the impact of their, of their journey, this kind of long train journey. But I don't know, I was the first to remind her that they're doing more than we are and point out that perhaps it was the harmonised version of This Land Is Your Land that went on 
<laughs> however many verses that that was probably the main bone of contention there i think the uh the world will be saved by harmony <laughs> the david brent philosophy of activism <laughs> i mean call me soft call me naive whether or not it's rational seeing the people that you feel like responsible or partly responsible for your mother's death then playing such an integral role in your wife's misery just I can't imagine what that must feel like the futility of it and you probably would be over emotional about it and Megan's given up her career she's thought I mean I don't know how anyone can envy her or as well or say like she's in this very privileged position and should just put up with it because she's also in a position where historically she should be seen and not heard and that's really problematic actually she's given up her career she's lost her father through this marriage because of how he behaved sure but the pressure that it put them both in no one was looking out for him as she entered this extraordinary new kind of stage of her life she's criticized for everything she does every ounce of charity work every smile the way she holds her baby i remember when she was first seen out and about with archie and there were so many things about how she wasn't holding her baby right. It's just relentless and it makes me depressed to observe. And I'm not surprised that Harry published that letter and I'm not surprised they're suing because I can't imagine what it must be like to watch the person you love enduring that and knowing that it's because of you and the yeah. fact that they chose mm. you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. study has been published about how much money British people spend to avoid awkwardness, confrontation or appearing impolite to establish the true cost of being British. Findings from the report include that people spend an extra £23 every month just to be polite, which totals to £7.1 billion nationally each year. Nine in ten Brits, there it is, <laughs> admit to spending money for fear of appearing impolite. Do you spend money on being polite, Panda? This is the perfect story to carry on from the royal family. It's like the most... If you were an American, you stumbled across the high and you listened to this. <laughs> I think this is like so... It's almost meta I know. of Britishness. We are doing this while eating sort of cucumber finger sandwiches. We're not, sadly, but we will be. I don't even know what constitutes spending money to be polite. Is that on note cards for thank you letters? Because I do love writing and receiving thank you letters and you write beautiful ones, Dolly. Thank you. Handwriting is sublime. It makes me quite angry. <laughs> Anyway, break break down for me what constitutes spending on being polite, and then I'll let you know. The activities included were buying an unplanned extra round of drinks, sticking around at an event for an extra drink. You definitely do that. Splitting the bill at a restaurant despite having a significantly cheaper meal than others, not asking for money back, which is owed, and donating money to charity, which I found a bit of an anomaly because that doesn't feel like a politeness measure no. to me. That feels like one of kind of conscience and compassion but maybe what they were asking is if people donated because they felt bad or because they felt they were obliged to or something do any of those habits resonate with you okay right i see i see what it means now so i'd put most of that under generosity yes so would i so i'm always happy to buy drinks but i can't pretend i'm buying any right now or sticking around for drinks extra or otherwise as for splitting the bill yes even when not drinking i would split the bill as I don't want to look petty or 
miserly but that is only possible when you can afford not to be yes exactly if you're on a tight budget splitting the bill can be really unfair if you've ordered a glass of water and a starter and you're feeling really self-conscious about that and very nervous throughout the meal that you know you might not be able to afford even that and I don't think not splitting the bill in that instance is impolite that's just entirely fair due to budget I've definitely been in that position when I was younger of feeling totally agonized that I'm paying for someone else's cocktails when I've been nursing a lime and soda for the whole meal yeah and I've noticed this thing that happens when since everyone's turned 30 where whenever the bill comes in a restaurant now there's just this sort of sound of oh let's just split it come on we're not students anymore I don't mind paying 30p extra for your side of spinach or whatever we all still have NatWest student accounts (laughs) all those purple cards just flung in the middle and do you know why we are all millennials are all NatWest bankers because they offered when we were all going to university did they give us some money student rail card but I do just find it funny that till the day I die I'm going to be banking with NatWest for no other reason than shaving fucking 10 quid off a train to Exeter in 2009 I'm 32 how have they not taken this away from me yet no it doesn't exist now it literally was when we were just students it still comes up on my online banking as a student account does it yes I've got the same card do you like that though does it make me feel young no I'd love to have a student account I think it is have a look at what your online banking's called oh I hope so um, but yeah, it's, I've, I've noticed this thing. Have you noticed that people say that? They're like, oh, let's just split it because there's this assumption that because we're in our 30s now, everyone's earning a bit more money. So you don't have to think about that kind of thing. But I'm always really aware in, in those conversations to kind of check the faces of everyone around the table because it, it is a lazy assumption to think that as you get older, everyone has a bit more money. That's not how life works. That's often not how careers work. And I think... Everyone, as you say, remembers those birthday dinners where you would go because you didn't want to let your friend down, but you would be feeling just slightly sick with nerves for the whole meal, kind of calculating how much your starter and tap water was compared to everyone else's order. And then the bill would come and you'd you'd just say a prayer, just hoping that your card would go through. I remember that feeling so well. It's It's so embarrassing. And eating out is such a privilege that our generation have sort of normalised. But my mum is always astounded that when it's someone's birthday, we go out for dinner. She's like, why not cook them something nice? Mm. Home. It's that whole experiential economy. She also can't really believe that people go on holiday even as regularly as as once a year. So there is now that pressure that didn't always exist. And it is obviously a really privileged position to be in to be able to go out for a meal. But I completely agree with what you're saying. It's so um, variable incomes. I'd only ever suggest to split the bill when I owe less. I think it'd be quite something to order the lobster, the steak and a bottle of... (laughs) Don Pezza, <laughs> and then let out a big belch and boom, let's split the bill. Instantly, I've never eaten that meal. That is like, that is a heart attack or, or some you, serious indigestion. I don't think you have to clarify that. <laughs> Do you know, to this day, one of the most gallant acts that I've been on the receiving end of, which obviously was by a woman, not a man, <laughs> was when I went to a birthday dinner for a close friend in my mid-twenties and I think I'd just gone freelance and it was one of those, you know, 22 quid in the NatWest account, end of the overdraft weeks. And I was just freaking out about money and about how I would pay for my side order and tap water on my card when everyone else had ordered loads of booze. And then it was decided that the bill was going to be split equally and it was a sum that I knew I didn't have in my account and I didn't want to be the person on someone's birthday 
who asked that we all got our calculators out. And then my friend Peach clocked all of this without me saying anything. And she paid her part first and then stood up to go to the loo and squeeze my hand and said, I've just got yours. And it's like such a small act of kindness, but I still think about it all the time. It's actually, it's really paid off for her because every time we go out for drinks now, I always buy all her drinks because I always refer to that one moment where it meant so much to me. And I think that that's really just an example of of politeness that I really hold as an, as an important thing in my life, which is like nothing to do with properness or etiquette, but an example of just true grace and kindness and elegance and responding to a situation um, and spending a bit of extra cash that won't have a huge effect on you, but will have such an enormous effect on the other person. I think there's a lovely thing to do that. It's just to have each other's backs. It's not really about politeness, this survey, to be no. honest. It's about, like, yeah. it's about care. There's an interesting segue. I noted when you said when you turned 30, which is always your, um, whenever you're talking about something kind of doomy, it's when you've turned 30. I know. <laughs> That's your I genre. Know. But when it's like BC and AD. <laughs> When you're at uni, it's a um, level playing field. You're all drinking the same basic table wine. That was the name of the rosé I drank at uni. Sainsbury's couldn't even bring themselves to call it rosé. It had an orange sketch of a table on the front of the bottle and it was called basic table wine. I remember that wine very well. Many a good night had on that. But obviously when you graduate, before long you're on different salaries. And by the time you hit your 30s, you're on wildly different salaries. Someone might work for the NHS, famously underpaid. Someone might work in the city. Also, someone's financial status is quite vague. You wouldn't necessarily know the precarity of someone else's finances. Other than via kind of inference, like what you can deduce from where they live or what they wear or where they go on holiday. And Mm. even then, like... You don't know, they might be saving up for something. So it's really subtle. And so that kind of hand-holding that Peach did, I think that's really crucial. You can't and shouldn't go poking around in everyone's finances to find out who has what, so who can split what. But I do think it's possible to be aware of when friends are relaxed about financials or when they look really agonised and can't pay the bills. And and that goes beyond, like, if you're out for dinner. Yes, exactly. And also, (laughs) speaking as someone... Over 30. Um, You feel it as well when people start having kids or they start having to support their parents or look after ill relatives or, you know, it's just there are so many factors that can impact someone's finances that are often go unnoticed, unseen, exactly. And it's just to have a kind of sensitivity to that all the time, I think, is is so, so important. Just referring back to, to those results from the survey, I think the key difference is whether you're parting with money in social situations with people that you don't know or or people that you would call acquaintances to make them feel more comfortable or to make them like you which is called people pleasing and sadly I'm very well versed in I think that's very different to paying to stay at an event held by someone that you love or helping out a skint friend who can't get around and you don't want them to feel self-conscious I really do think that's one of life's great luxuries to be able to do that and for most people I know who are lucky enough to make uh, a little bit more cash as they get older everyone says the same thing that the true privilege and joy of not having to check your bank balance every single day is that you can instinctively offer those acts of generosity for for your friends and family and there are many people who long to be able to do that for people that they care about um, or, or work incredibly hard in hopes that they will be able to do that for people that they care about and I don't think that's about politeness. I think that's about love. 
I think what is about politeness is when you go for office drinks and you say yes because you think all of your... I mean, I don't work in an office anymore, so I'm just imagining this scenario. Because <laughs> you think that all your pals at work are going, and then, like, one by one, you learn that they've all got other plans. Yeah. And so you end up in the pub with, you know, Jane and Joan, who you've never got on with. Don't see eye to eye politically, let's put it that way. <laughs> and you're there nursing your warm white wine, and, like, no one wants to break. <laughs> you know that thing when it's like... It's almost like the first person, it's like when like lads go boozing, it's the first one to like break the seal. <laughs> so you've got all these women stuck with each other unhappily on a Friday night. Maybe one token man who quickly, quickly breaks away. He realises <laughs> realizes the weakness of this social setting. But that is when I think this British politeness, I think that, that survey might apply here. I totally agree. Slightly off topic, but it always amuses me. Our friend Emma Gannon has a very funny story about when she worked in an office, how there was just one woman who was the, like, absolute reliable night out for everyone in the office, who no one really knew that well. But if you'd had a difficult day and you really needed a glass of wine, you knew that that woman would always say yes at four (laughs) (laughs) o'clock. Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com, or tweet us at thehiloshow. We look forward to seeing some of you at the Barbican tonight. We can't wait. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.